Okay, so I'd like to welcome to the show today, Tom Whitmore. How are you doing today, sir? Just fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, Frank. Absolute pleasure. So just to quickly introduce the the topic that we'll be talking about today in kind of layman's terms before we get into a bit more detail. So there's long been rumors of a secret crash retrieval program or programs or other various deeply buried uh, secret UFO programs within the US government. And, you know, it could be argued that if these secret programs do exist, there would perhaps be a select few who are operating as part of a kind of control group to oversee these secret programs and the associated knowledge and materials, etc., contained within, and also to strictly control who has access. And uh, sometimes this is referred to as Majestic 12, MJ12, the Zodiac Group, and, and various other names. And there's been various documents surface over the years which refer to this group by those various names, which is often kind of held up as proof of, of the group's existence. Um, I, I personally kind of think that it does sort of stand to reason that a group like that may exist, but are the documents legit or a hoax? Or is there a bit of a mix of fact and fiction going on here? Well, uh, my guest today has been looking into this specific area as somewhat of a specialty uh, for quite some time now, and I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. So, um, Tom, if you could just give us a little bit of background on yourself, if that's okay, for any listeners who uh, aren't aware of your work, and, and then you can go straight ahead with your sort of talk on, on the documents and things, and then once that's done, we'll get into some questions and things uh, afterwards. Okay, thanks, Frank. Well, I'm, I have to admit, I'm 69 years old. I was born in 1953. So uh, that was, you know, it was peak Cold War when I was growing up. Uh, I lived through uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, the Kennedy assassination and all that. When I was 12 years old, I was at a friend's house and I saw uh, a couple of UFO books by Donald Kehoe. Uh, things like Flying Saucers, Top Secret, and, and all that. And that piqued my interest. And I started reading those books, and uh, that started my UFO career. And back in those days, uh, we had uh, three television channels in the U.S., and we, had, we actually had newspapers. And uh, there was a lot in the media about UFOs during the 50s and 60s, and, and not as much in the 70s, but uh, there was a big flap, I think, in 1973. So, uh, you know, I was aware of the UFO uh, issue in those days, but I, I wasn't really active in the field. Uh, in the 1980s, I was walking down the street uh, past a magazine store, and I saw a copy of UFO Universe magazine uh, that was uh, published by Timothy Green Beckley. And I bought that, and I read it, and I... I read what was actually uh, from Bill Cooper, his his spiel about underground bases and the secret UFO program and and all of this. And <clears throat> I've got to admit, at that time, and I have to look, I have to watch for my gullibility factor at times. But at that time, I kind of fell for it, uh, hook, line, and sinker, because I've been reading history all my life. I know a fair amount about U European history and. Uh, uh, and uh, Cold War history. So I got interested in espionage. And when, when I saw this business about UFOs being run by a secret government program, that really, really piqued my interest. So I became active around 19, uh, 1990, and I joined MUFON. Uh, I passed the field investigator exam and uh, I became state section director, and in 1995, I was I was uh, invited to join the MUFON board, and I've been on the MUFON board uh, until this year. I left I left the board this year in July of 2022, and I had been on the board for many many years, and I thought it was time for uh, a younger qualified 
deserving person to take my place on the board. So uh, that that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Uh, still, I I keep I try to keep up with what's going on in the UFO field. I have my own contacts. I have Facebook and Twitter, and I follow YouTube. So you know, I try to keep up with it as much as I can. Now, the original MJ-12 affair uh, became apparent to the public in about 1987. And what, what happened was uh, a, a, an investigator by the name of Bill Moore was very active in the UFO community at that time. And he uh, was really trying hard to develop inside contacts in the government about what the government really knew about UFOs. And he was rec- recruited apparently by Richard Doty uh, around, the, uh, around the year 1980. And Richard Doty at that time was, was a uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigations special agent. And uh, Moore kept developing contacts and he, he, was, he had a couple of things going on, but uh, Apparently, somewhere in there, somebody told him that uh, if he would cooperate with their efforts, that he would he would get some inside documents uh, from the government about what was going on with the government's uh, secret uh, secret parts of the UFO program. So uh, some things were going on 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 uh, on Kirtland Air Force Base with Richard Doty at the time. That that was the uh, time that the Paul Benowitz affair was going on. And uh, a couple of documents were floated. Uh, Richard Doty passed uh, what's what's called the Aquarius Telex to Bill Moore to pass on to uh, Paul Benowitz. And, and that uh, document mentioned MJ-12. Uh, also, uh, Doty passed a document or showed a document to Linda Howe uh, which is which I refer to as the Carter briefing document, the Carter briefing document, and that mentioned uh, MJ12 as well. So uh, I think it was in 1987 uh, or 88. I think it was 1987 that another uh, prominent UFO researcher by the name of Timothy Good, uh, uh, he came out with a book called Above Top Secret, and he was about to release the so-called MJ-12 documents, and these uh, these comprised of, at the time, the Eisenhower briefing document and the Truman Forrestal memo. So uh, when he was about to come out with that, then Bill Moore felt like he needed to release his version. Uh, so he, uh, he made the so-called MJ-12 documents public at that time, and that's, that's when the UFO public uh, became aware of of the uh, idea of MJ-12. So uh, now going back in history, in the late seventh world, well during the seventies and into the late seventies, uh, a researcher by the name of Leonard Stringfield had been collecting stories uh, from people that uh, were reporting about the government uh, recovering crashed UFOs. And he uh, wrote up several so-called status reports that is a collection of this testimony from a number of different sources about the government uh, recovering UFOs and having bodies in their possession and all that. So uh, around uh, a little bit before, well, in the late 1970s, Stanton Friedman had gotten in touch with with uh, uh, this gentleman from, that claimed to have been involved in the Roswell affair and or the Roswell incident, and Bill Moore and Stan Friedman researched this uh, pretty much in depth. And Bill Moore came out with this book called the Roswell, the Roswell incident. It's a little paperback, and he he uh, co-authored it with uh, this person by the name of Charles Berlitz. And it was it was after that book came out that this whole trend about uh, the government recovering saucers and eventually MJ twelve this whole whole trend had started. And uh, parallel to that, Richard Doty, who uh, I believe was employed in the Air Force, he'd been in the Air Force since nineteen sixty eight, and he was employed as in the security police, if I'm correct. 
And he was, uh, he had gotten into the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. And a document, a couple of documents uh, were, were sent to a couple of different parties that uh, they, the, the documents were, they, they were either disinformation or they were outright hoaxes. Uh, one went to uh, APRO, which was a prominent UFO uh, research organization at the time, and another document went uh, to the National Enquirer. Uh, and Bob Pratt, being uh, uh, one of one of the uh, main reporters for the National Enquirer, and Bob Pratt was a really good uh, investigative journalist. He did he did very good inve- investigation. And when when he checked out the details of this document, he found out that. Very little of it, if any of it, was correct. So, this this trend of uh, phony documents, semi phony documents, disinformation had had really begun in earnest in the in the late nineteen seventies. So, uh, the MJ twelve affair became public around nineteen eighty seven and nineteen eighty eight, and we did have some follow up activities after that. For example. The UFO Cover-Up Live program was aired in, I think, in October of 1988. And this was a collection of people, uh, William Moore and Jamie Chandray, who was a research partner of his, uh, Robert Collins, who uh, was on the show under the codename Condor, and then there was a codename Falcon, which I believe it was Richard Doty being uh, being interviewed uh, that may have been for the purpose of protecting the identity of the real Falcon, and I can get I can get into that later in the question and answer section. Uh, and they talked about how the uh, the government had recovered UFOs. Uh, they had uh, a secret Air Force base or secret locations where the saucers were kept. They showed a, a graphic. Uh, demonstration of, you know, the shape of the alien bodies. Uh, they discussed the internal uh, uh, organs and the, the internal uh, physique of, uh, of these aliens. So it was, uh, and then they made a couple of kind of strange uh, comments like the aliens like to listen to, to Tibetan music and they like to eat strawberry ice cream. And that didn't help the overall uh, credibility of the show. Uh, and, and it was uh, supposed to be live, but apparently they were reading from, from cue cards. So this UFO cover-up live, in my opinion, is an important uh, part of the history of the MJ-12 affair because this is where a lot of the, a lot of the beliefs and the rumors and the myths and possibly realities of the government's involvement in the UFO program uh, were made public. And then also in the, in the late 1980s, the Bob Lazar issue arose. And uh, this, uh, there, were, there was another person, another couple of people that were active in the UFO scene during that time, namely uh, John Lear. And uh, John Lear had some kind of connection with Bob Lazar, who claimed to have worked at this place called Area 51 in Nevada, a very remote location where uh, he claimed that he worked on flying saucers there briefly. Okay, I think he, if he was there doing that, he was only there for maybe six weeks. So uh, uh, that was that was that's been another important part of the UFO. Uh, history, the MJ-12 history. So uh, this is why I'm mentioning it, because we're, we're still talking about that today in the UFO community. Then in the 1990s, a document arose called uh, SOM 1-01, SOM 1-01. And this, this uh, document appeared similarly to the way that the original uh, MJ-12 documents came up, because the original MJ-12 documents that I mentioned were actually uh, mailed or delivered in a roll of 35-millimeter film that had to be developed. And William Moore and Jamie Chandray had developed that film and 
and thus the uh, MJ-12 documents. And the Psalm 1-01 document was delivered in the same way to uh, a UFO investigator uh, in a different in a different part of the country, and it described how uh, what what the procedures and the protocols are for in recovering these UFOs and in recovering the bodies and crating the bodies and shipping them. And uh, this is an interesting document. It's been criticized roundly uh, by certain UFO researchers, as have. Uh, the the original uh, MJ-12 documents themselves. Uh, but it does uh, contain some very interesting detail, such as a sign-in log, you know, a, a log record of who, who had checked out uh, the document. Um, another very uh, significant development in the history of the MJ-12 affair were the uh, really a whole lot of documents received by Timothy Cooper. And Timothy Cooper is an individual. He had a, he did have a military background, but he he lived uh, he lives in California. But he had a couple of sources that delivered a large number of MJ twelve or MJ twelve related documents, and uh, a lot of those are posted on the uh, uh, Bob Wood and 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 Ryan Woods website, uh, majesticdocuments.com. So. Uh, if if uh, if your listeners out there want to get a hold of these documents, you go to majesticdocuments.com and you can you can read them there. And these these papers uh, were really quite extensive. Uh, one of the more interesting ones was uh, the so-called White Hot Report, which was a report by uh, Nathan Twining, who at the time was uh, he was very high up in the Air Force. He was eventually on his way to becoming chief of staff at the Air Force. And it was a report of him confirming this uh, recovery of, of a UFO, probably Roswell, and a lot of comments about the power plant and aspects of the UFO. And there are other uh, Timothy Cooper documents uh, involved in this. One of them is uh, a note from the daughter of, of one of the sources uh, saying that uh, she was delivering the last installment. And one of the notes in there from one of the sources said that some of the information was going to be correct and some of it was not going to be correct. So you had to sort that out. And that's a problem that's that's involved in all of these, what, what I call question documents, because they're not, they're not official documents released by the government under the Freedom of Information Act. And the more conservative UFO researchers reject them out of hand uh, because of that. Now, after 2000, we had uh, claims by this person that goes by the name of Dan Burrish, and he claimed that he was a microbiologist, a molecular biologist that uh, that had worked at uh, Area 51, S4, and he worked with an alien that that's uh, referred to as J Rod, and uh, these are of course outlandish claims. He uh, he claimed to have uh, uh, advanced degrees in in uh, biological science, and that he had even uh, been invited into the MJ twelve group. So uh, that that can be a little bit hard to believe if the guy's working as a security guard in Las Vegas. Uh, but these are this is a continuation of these types of claims. There's a small amount of documentation about that, some of which I have on file. Um, and another thing that came along in the 2000s was was the Serpo story. And this uh, this was uh, a long number of installments uh, that went on the internet that claimed that there was a project uh, by the U.S. Uh, government to, uh, a, it was an exchange project between uh, the United States government and apparently the aliens that were uh, involved in the Roswell incident. So they were, they were picking up their dead and then they were taking uh, something like uh, 16 or 18 uh, Americans uh, to their planet, the planet Serpo. 
And of course, you know, the conservative uh, UFO types are very skeptical of this, or they, they reject it out of hand. Um, and, and again, uh, the general pattern in these type of, types of stories and claims is that the, uh, the, the information arises anonymously. We don't know who the sources are. Okay. But this is, uh, th this is uh, part of the pattern of this whole history. Also in the 2000s, we had the Project Beta book by uh, Greg Bishop. And Greg Bishop was a uh, friend of Bill Moore, the, the well-known UFO researcher. And he had uh, gotten Bill Moore's version of, of events. And he also uh, interviewed Richard Doty and interviewed a number of people involved in the, uh, the Paul Benowitz affair in the 1980s. And the, the Project Beta uh, story. The book has become something of a standard uh, source in in understanding uh, what went on during uh, the 1980s. So here we are getting up to the present. Uh, there was another book that has a lot of information in it, and I'm not sure how much of it is reliable. I think some of it is, uh, some of it may not be. But the book Exempt from Disclosure uh, came out after 2010, and it's by Robert Collins, who was, uh, I referred to earlier as, as Condor in the UFO Cover-Up Live program. And it does uh, have a lot of very interesting information in it. And I think anyone that's interested in this subject, uh, I, I would encourage uh, them to read these two, uh, get a hold of these two books. Project Beta, and Exempt from Disclosure. Now, I'm not saying that this is, this is all truth, okay? But it, it, it's a lot of very, very interesting information because from my, from my standpoint, uh, I want to know who's providing this information and why. It's been a pattern going back. Uh, it's, it's been going back 40 years. This has been going on, so... Uh, these are one of the questions that, I, that I'd like to get answers to. And then we have uh, Richard Doty coming out with uh, giving interviews, you know, after 2010. And he, he's, made a, he's made a lot of, um, he's made a lot of claims. Uh, some of them are outlandish. He, he hasn't provided documentation or proof or supporting evidence, but uh, he, he, he was, for a time, an AFOSI special agent, and he, he uh, says that he has contacts from the intelligence community. He's a, he's a member of this uh, retired uh, intelligence officers association, so he does get uh, information from them, and they, they compare stories and they compare experiences. So now what I do, I, uh, uh, I retired in 2019, and uh, I, uh, for a time, I lived in the Washington, D.C. area. I lived there for 19 months so that I could go to the National Ar Archives and do research and also to the Library of Congress. And uh, I did move back away from uh, Washington, D.C. area uh, in, in uh, 2021. But uh, what I've been doing is, is I've been uh, writing research papers and I'll research uh, a topic that's related to MJ-12, at least from my point of view, uh, for, uh, I'll do, I'll research for four to six months. And so, so far I've, I've uh, produced uh, five research papers, uh, uh, MJ-12, the counterintelligence angle before MJ-12, uh, MJ-12, psycho Psychological Warfare and Strategic Deception. Uh, I wrote a paper about AFOSI, and I've written a paper about forgeries and hoaxes in historical context. So uh, currently, uh, my, my latest project is I'm working, I've been researching continuity of government. And the reason why I'm doing that is because a prominent person in the UFO field by the name of John Alexander uh, wrote a book about UFOs, and he's made statements in his public presentations that 
uh, high-level source told him that MJ-12 existed, but it didn't have anything to do with UFOs. And uh, Alexander is in, of the opinion that it had something to do with continuity of government. So that's what I'm currently researching, and I'll be starting to write uh, the text to my, my newest paper in the next month or two. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, thank you very much for for that. Very, very interesting indeed. And um, there really is quite a history of of various documents over the over the decades, really, isn't it, coming out relating to uh, MJ twelve. So, I suppose the um, the the first thing that I, I'd like to ask is, out of all of those various different sets of of documents that have been brought forward and, and come come out into the public, are, are there any that you regard as being you know, more legit than others? Are there any that you think are, you know, to be taken a bit more seriously? That's hard to say. Um, there there are so many documents in the Timothy Cooper series that uh, I don't know if they've really been adequately examined from a forensic standpoint. Now, um, the original document, the so-called Eisenhower briefing document, was uh, roundly scrutinized by skeptical UFO researchers, and a number of things were found wrong with it. So I I think we can safely, pretty safely, uh, say that the uh, Eisenhower briefing document is almost certainly not authentic. But I would like to add that it's possible that some of the information in the document is correct or, or is, is, uh, is, is possibly true. Another uh, paper in that series is, is the Truman Forstall memo, and it's allegedly a communication from President Truman to James Forrestall, who was the, uh, he was the uh, Secretary of Defense at the time, uh, authorizing him to form this MJ-12 group. So uh, that turned out to be apparently a cut-and-paste job. Somebody copied Truman's signature and stuck it on, uh, typed up this memo and stuck the two together. So uh, I think uh, another interesting document is a third uh, paper that William Warren and Jamie Chandray found in the National Archives, and that, that's known as the Cutler-Twining Memo. Uh, and that's that's been questioned as well. So uh, the overall pattern of information to me is very, very in- interesting. But I, I will not take a hard position and say de- definitely this document is authentic or that document is authentic or the information in it is correct because I just don't know. Yeah, it's often a, a real grey area, isn't it? I mean, I think um, Rick Doty himself has, has kind of said that the way that these things generally work with disinformation is, you know, healthy mix of factual information with a lot of, you know, bad information kind of mixed in there to sort of make it more believable. So I suppose there could be some some elements of that going on with some of these uh, documents as well. Are, are there any out of the out of the documents that have come out that you can consider to be definitely a, a fake document that we just, it's not worth kind of taking much notice of. Well, I, I just about all of them should be considered questioned. Um, and for the, uh, what I'm referring to as the Timothy Cooper series, you know, they, they should be approached skeptically um, I can give you some examples. For example, uh, the so-called Aquarius Telex uh, was a communication that Bill Moore claims that he actually saw the original. And uh, a couple of weeks later, Richard Doty brought him a copy of it to pass on to Paul Benowitz. And Moore could tell that the document had been altered. It wasn't the same as the original that he saw. Now, how and why it was altered, um, if there's a book that, that uh, or a publication that William Moore 
came out with. It's, it's pretty rare, but it's called the MJ-12 Documents and, An- and Analytical Review. And uh, he, he lines the two up and shows you know, what the differences are. So that, that's just one example of the, the kind of caution, the kind of care that we have to take in, in just, uh, we don't want to accept these documents at, at just at face value. We have to carefully look at them and consider, you know, the content, the style, uh, the typeface. Now, here, here's another problem. Forensic document examiners will tell you that unless they have the original, they can't authenticate a document. And most all of what we've gotten are are either photocopies or they're images of documents uh, that are posted on the Internet. So, uh, you know, I just advise caution. Yeah, always, always best to... uh to to operate with caution in with these things i think isn't it and uh maintain a healthy dose of uh, skepticism i mean outside of the actual documents themselves how much kind of weight do you attach to the whole idea of an mj12 organization do you think that kind of thing is you know a, a good possibility or is it another one of those where it's kind of perhaps some truth mixed in with the the fiction Frank, I think it all depends on whether uh, one or more saucers have been recovered. If if the military and the government has re- has recovered saucers, uh, if they recovered a flying saucer in 1947, then uh, it it seems logical and likely that some kind of special group would be formed to study uh, the situation. Um. But at the same time, I, I get little other tidbits of information along in my research that uh, maybe it was the information or the work that was done on, on, on these projects was really uh, a collection kind of within the military industrial matrix of authority. You know, uh, a general here, a scientist there, a government person over here. And it may not have been a formal uh, group of 12 people, you know, that met periodically and, and all that. It, it could have been uh, some kind of <coughs> assigned assignment of duties and responsibilities within a larger matrix within the Defense Department and the government. Yeah, I, 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 that's kind of what I was saying in, in the little intro that I did earlier. I think if if there is some kind of you know, non-human material or some something exotic materials of whatever type, and obviously that could go all the way to being, you know, an intact craft or fragments of a craft or even potentially, you know, non-human bodies. It would sort of stand to reason that you would need a control group. But I suppose the question is, is that control group actually like MJ12, Majestic 12, or, you know, is is there a possibility that these documents and the kind of, perpetuation of this narrative about an mj12 is actually kind of a cover story for a a totally different group which actually is doing the control work of whatever has been retrieved right well i mean you can have the cover story of the cover of the cover of something else you know (laughs) exactly uh, uh, it's you know they a common term in the ufo field these days is rabbit hole well what that means to me is you go down that rabbit hole and you never get to the end of it. You never get to the answer that you're, you're searching for because uh, it, it is possible. Now, we have to remember that if, if, uh, if these things have been recovered, that's real, from their point of view at least, it's very, very serious business. Okay. So, and, and it's like uh, even uh, uh, your prime minister uh, said once that the truth is so pressure, it has to be uh, protected by a bodyguard of lies. So if if the uh, authorities think that this is too hot uh, for the public to, to handle, to absorb, to understand, to adjust to, then uh, it's, you know, it, it seems logical that they would, uh, they, they would set things up so that when you try to get to the truth, you, you don't get there. <laughs> and, and, I can say one thing. If 
if this kind of a program exists and if an MJ-12 or something like it exists, it's buried so deep that you can't get to it. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how the, some of the current things that are going on with um, you know Congress basically passing these this new legislation to try to you know uh, provide for legal protections for whistleblowers to actually come out who potentially have worked on on these secret programs. It's it's kind of interesting how how this ties in, and uh, if there is some kind of control group, you know, you'd think that they'd be pulling out all the stops to try to, you know, stop any whistleblowers and things from from coming forward. Do you think there's any possibility that whistleblowers coming forward can actually shed a bit of light on this, or do you think it's just so deeply buried that that we're unlikely to see any any get into the bottom of that mystery? I don't think we're going to see it on the public side. It's possible that the, uh, you know, the Intelligence Committee and uh, the Armed Services Committee and maybe select people on there might be told some things in private uh, or behind closed doors and, you know, in in a closed session. I doubt if we're going to learn anything on the public side that, that's really, really, truly hot. Uh, and I'm not sure, you know, there's a lot of talk about amnesty and all this. I, I'm not a lawyer, and I, I'm certainly not an expert on, on government law. I'm not sure that Congress has the ability to grant amnesty. The, these uh, people that are working on these highly classified programs, they signed a bunch of papers. They basically signed their life away in terms of uh, disclosing any information about that. And whoever the whatever the authority is that that uh, uh, causes them to agree to this, that authority would be, have to be the one that grants release from uh, from from their security oaths. Okay, and I think that's on the uh, the executive side, not on the legislative side. Now, what they what they what they can do, uh, I would think, is the Congress. Congress can say, we'll give you immunity from prosecution on this side. In other words, if you disclose something against your security oath to us, we will not forward a, a criminal referral to the Justice Department. Okay? So maybe that they can be told some, some things in, in confidence that way. Mm. Now, yeah, some... I, I Sorry, just want to point this out that during... Uh, during the 1990s, uh, uh, Congressman Schiff from New Mexico uh, started uh, insisting that the government undertake a, an investigation about Roswell, and the Government Accounting Office uh, did did that. But at the same time, the Air Force tried to get ahead of the of, of the situation, and uh, they the Secretary of the Air Force actually granted release of anyone involved with the with the Roswell incident and granted them uh, a wa- waiver of their security oath okay and that that's one uh, that's one example of how that happened but of course nothing came of it because they ended up saying that it was a mogul balloon and all that kind of thing but that that I could it could work that way but I I just can't see that happening in this case that's my personal opinion. Do you have any thoughts about what the extent of materials or craft could actually be that's being held? I mean, obviously, it's quite a speculative question that, but you think we are looking at craft, multiple craft, potentially bodies, or is it more a case of like, you know, fragments of metal and things like that, which perhaps have unusual properties, which, you know, I guess would be pretty interesting in of itself, you know, if, if there's some kind of metals that don't originate on this planet that have amazing properties and things like that, but they're not clearly part of some kind of non-human technology. I think I think that would be very interesting. But obviously the most interesting thing would be an actual intact craft. Do you have any thoughts about what is actually being held? Uh, I think if they have anything, they probably have at least several if not more, intact craft. And I think they have, uh, if, if they do have anything, I think they have numbers of bodies uh, that are, uh, they're 
warehoused in several different locations around the country. And they may even have a live alien or two, either as a guest or as a prisoner. Uh, and they may have uh, some kind of ability to communicate with one or more of these groups, you know, from time to time. Um, I won't go so far as to say they've they've had treaties and all that. I, I, I don't know. That's That's on the rumor level. And I'm not saying that it's true that I know. I don't know. But I think if it is uh, a case where they have recovered stuff, I think it's more than one saucer and and probably a number of, of bodies. Mm. And do you think that's the the kind of the more well-known uh, crash cases, like the you know, Roswell's and Trinity and things like that, perhaps even Virginia, Brazil? Or do you think it's perhaps ones that you know are not as well-known? Uh, if, if Roswell is real, it's probably one of them. Uh, Aztec, it depends on who you talk to. If you if you talk to uh, uh, Kevin Randall, uh, Aztec is a hoax. If you if you talk to the Ramses, it's it's real. So I just have to kind of let that one go. Uh, I think there are other possible incidents that we don't. You know, we don't, they're not as well known as Roswell and we can't, we don't really, uh, the locations where the recoveries occurred, you know, were not really identified, but I do think that there's been more than one instance. Mm. Fascinating to consider, but like you say, there's kind of often no consensus on these things, is there? Like everybody agrees that this is definitely a case where something was retrieved and things like that. I think there's a lot of opinions swirling around. Speaking of things that there's a lot of opinions swirling around on, what what do you make of the fact that MJ12 is actually mentioned in the the Wilson notes, the Wilson documents? I suppose that is kind of a whole other conversation, talking about the legitimacy of the Wilson notes and whether they're genuine. But MJ12 is kind of mentioned in those notes. What what do you think about that? Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I think uh, in the original meeting that happened with Steve, Stephen Greer and uh, the, the other people involved in that meeting with Admiral Wilson, which was at the Pentagon, I believe. That, that was the initial contact uh, that the subject of MJ-12 did come up. And there's, there's a story that I think one of, one of Admiral Wilson's aides said that they knew about MJ-12, but they weren't they weren't cleared to, they knew that it existed, but they weren't cleared to get any information on it. And then uh, MJ, the term MJ-12 did turn up in the Admiral Wilson document. So it, MJ-12 is, is a mystery. Um, it could be nothing more than a hoax. It could be the name of something that doesn't have anything to do with UFOs, or it could be a, a real UFO-related uh, group. And like I said earlier about the projects, Frank, it's, it's so secret that we're unable to get to the information. Now, there have been a couple of instances where when, when the MJ-12 topic came up, like when the documents or when Bill Moore brought the documents public, there was, there was actually an investigation by the FBI. And they went around, they tried to find out. Uh, nobody had ever heard of MJ-12 in the public before, and they went around trying to find out if there was, a, there was anything to the MJ-12 term. And no, uh, none of the government departments would either, they either knew nothing about it or they, uh, they uh, wouldn't admit that they did. Then also, when the Cutler-Twining memo was recovered, uh, the, the supervising archivist there conducted an investigation from the National Archives, and there's a memorandum from this person uh, attached attached to the uh, Cutler 20 memor memorandum in the National Archives, and this person conducted an investigation and couldn't find any record of MJ-12 anywhere. So MJ-12, the existence of it is, is it's, a, it's a mystery. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, so it sort of reminds me of like... Um, 
Uh, Christopher Mellon has made some comments recently about, you know, if if these kind of programs exist, you know, the crash retrieval programs, the reverse engineering programs, that they exist kind of outside of, uh, he, he refers to it as like the three galaxies of, of secrecy, um, you know, the kind of Department of Energy, um, the Defense Department and the intelligence community. And he says that he was aware of a lot of that during his time, during the previous roles that he had. Um, and he didn't see anything UFO related. But then he since come to learn that if those programs do exist, they would have existed outside of that normal structure in the kind of a, um, you know, with no oversight, essentially. So operating com- completely off, you know, off their own kind of uh, set of rules. And I suppose you could argue that it's the same kind of thing with an MJ-12 organization. It's unlikely that you really are going to be able to get to find out too much information about them, even if you went looking pretty hard for it. So it's, it's, you know, how do we even start kind of actually trying to to, to locate a prog- a group like that or, or a program like that? It's, it's pretty difficult to ever track down, isn't it? Yeah, and I've, you know, I, I contemplate this all the time, and I have trouble understanding how they can run what has got to be an expensive uh, project of, you know, uh, recovering UFOs, uh, storing them, recovering bodies, all the stuff that we think about. I, I have trouble uh, understanding how they can run all that off the books. Now, but, but in the military, I mean, the military basically operates out of secrecy. So if, if the military is handling something and it's classified, then you better not talk about it, okay? And I think there, there's, there are possibly a lot of people out there that know something, but they just can't talk. Um, now, in studying uh, continuity of government, I did run across an instance where the government was, was uh, uh, they had a continuity of government site uh, for the purpose of, of uh, letting the Congress uh, have a place to go in, ca- in case of nuclear war. It's, ca- it's called the Greenbrier Resort. And underneath this hotel was this whole, this whole uh, uh, lo- facility that was large enough and spacious enough to have all of Congress in there with enough food and cots and water and all of that uh, to sustain them for a period of time. And nobody, nobody knew it about it. It was, it was highly secret. It was highly classified. Uh, eventually, one of the accountants for the hotel ran across something uh, that uh, they had questions about, and eventually, uh, somebody from the program had to read read uh, the management into that. And what they were doing was they had uh, they had a shell company, and then they used a third party. And then the operating funds for the program were laundered through a, a conventional bank, but the bank president was read into the program and sworn to secrecy. So maybe, you know, maybe it's something like that. They set, they set up shell companies. The shell companies use another shell company. That shell company uses a third party. And the money, the money is, is laundered somehow. And even with the CIA, I mean, the, you don't, the CIA, and just as an example, the CIA's budget is not public. It's concealed within other government agencies' budgets. Okay, and the, 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 that's just a fundamental way that they conceal something. And uh, even uh, Stephen Greer said that they, for these UFO programs, they they're covered by a, a quote unquote conventional program. Uh, that has documentation, which which is fake, and then they have the real program concealed behind that. So maybe these are some of the ways that they do it. Mm. Yeah, it's a murky world of secrecy, isn't it? Trying to understand, you know, where all these things are, are really going on. Um, what I've got to ask you about the um, the comments you mentioned earlier from um, John Alexander. 
um, like you say, he would basically said, if I'm remembering it uh, correctly, that he's aware of uh, an MJ-12 organisation, um, but it's not to do with UFOs. What What do you make of, of those comments? Do you think he's, he's it's one of those where he, he is aware of it and perhaps he thinks that it really is to do with UFOs, but he can't say? Or do you think he's, he's being kind of transparent in his comments? Well, he's, he's mentioned it in his book. Uh, he's mentioned that in uh, his presentations, like at, this, at these UFO conferences. I had a conversation with him in a parking lot about it. He made the same comment at the SCU conference earlier this year, and he thinks that the MJ-12 group are concerned with continuity of government. Now, uh, I know enough about the MJ-12 group, about their biographies, to, uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I beg to differ on that assertion that, they're, that they have something to do with continuity of government. Uh, that, I mean, I'm not a civil engineer, I'm not a military guy or, any, or a government person, but if I was going to form a secret committee uh, for continuity of government, it, w- it wouldn't be those people, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh so, uh, and I, I'm going to eventually, I may write it up in this paper, but I, I went through, I've gone through the biographies of the alleged MJ-12 members on the Eisenhower briefing document and looking at their expertise and their areas of responsibility. You've got a couple of people that are high level in government. You've got several military people. Uh, you've got several people that, either were or were at one time involved in central intelligence. They were either the director of central intelligence or they were uh, with the central intelligence group. You have, uh, you have an aeronautical engineer. You have a, a person that's an R&D uh, research and development person, Vannevar Bush. You have a, uh, a biophysicist, Detlev Bronk. And you have one military uh, guy that was involved with, uh, he, he was involved, uh, General Montague was involved with White Sands and, and, and Sandia Base, which was atomic weapons. So if I had to get, if, if, it's, if MJ-12 is not UFOs, I, my guess would be they were possibly considering a high-altitude spy plane or a high-altitude bomber or maybe a nuclear aircraft, okay? Maybe something like that, which any of those three in 1947 would be, could be considered highly, highly secret. Now, the timeline is not quite matching that in that the U-2, I don't think, was developed until 19, you know, Area 51 and U-2 and all that wasn't until 1952, 1953. And Lockheed, uh, when they get assigned with these with these projects, they, they usually come up with something pretty quick. So my estimation that it could have been some kind of high altitude airplane, you know, it, it's speculative, but it but it fits that list list much better than continuity of government, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, one name that I've I've heard mentioned as being associated with MJ twelve is uh, Bobby Ray Inman. Is that is that something that you've you've come across as, as somebody who's supposedly involved? And um, if so, uh, how, how do you think you know his his comments kind of fit into this? Because he he did an interview quite recently with Project Unity where he sort of really strongly asserts that he'd never seen anything to do with UFOs and that he you know that there was nothing that had ever been found by the government. He was really quite in you know denying in the the entire thing really when it was mentioned. Um, so yeah, I'd be interested to see. You know whether you think he potentially was involved, and and what are behind is is complete denials of the whole thing. Well, Inman was he went as high in government as you can go. Uh, he was the director of NSA, uh, and he I think he was the number two guy in the CIA, and he was uh, uh, he was a signal intelligence guy. That was I think that was his main area of expertise. And signals intelligence, of course, is highly classified. 
National Security Agency and all that. Other than that, uh, in the maybe late 80s, early 90s, this person by the name of Bob Oshler was approaching uh, Bobby Ray Inman uh, about, you know, about having something to do with UFOs. And Inman denies that he had anything to do with that. Now, the director of the NSA, that, that rotates out every two or three years. Okay, so I'm not sure where or how people got on to Bobby Ray Inman being associated with that because just being a director of the NSA is not remarkable because you get a new one every you know few years and they're usually a two or three star general in or a flag rank you know from the military typically and uh Inman was was an admiral, Admiral Bobby Ray Inman. So that that in itself isn't remarkable. Now he is mentioned in the in the uh, so-called Oak Shannon notes, which have been made public uh, recently, and that was in 1985. So uh, maybe in this whole group of people that were looking into UFOs, the so-called aviary and the the group that John Alexander put together, the Advanced Physical Theoretical Physics Group, maybe somehow they got wind that maybe Bobby Ray Inman had something to do with UFOs. But I, I don't think there's not any real direct evidence about him rather than anyone else. Yeah, the the mention of him in those Oak Shannon notes from the um, the Advanced uh, Theoretical Physics Working Group, isn't it? The uh, the the meeting that took place. Uh, the mention of him in those notes is it's difficult to tell what context he was actually mentioned in because I mean it just basically has his name and it mentions that um, uh, something to do with a major engineering project. And then it's circled, and then that's it. It's a blank page. So, I mean, I suppose it could have just been as simple as his name was brought up as somebody who's, who might be an interesting person to speak to about this. You know, there's not necessarily any context as to how he was mentioned. So it's difficult to see whether or not he did actually have any direct involvement in anything relating to UFOs or not. Um, but then again, even if he did, he would he would have to strongly deny it anyway, you have to imagine. So difficult to get to the bottom of that one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, you have special access program. Then you have an acknowledged special access program. Then you have a waived unacknowledged special access program. So if you're on the bigot list or you're read in and someone comes up and asks you if you know anything about that, what do you think they're going to say? They get in trouble. They they get in trouble for even admitting that the program exists. So it doesn't surprise me that these guys deny everything. Now that doesn't mean that they are involved, but it does. But it also doesn't surprise me that they deny it. Yeah, it just speaks to how difficult it is to actually get to the bottom of these things, isn't it? Because you know you could interpret a denial as. You know, pretty much. Well, he would have to deny deny it. But then again, if they weren't involved and they genuinely weren't involved, then they would also deny it. So it's really difficult to actually, you know, get to the bottom of it. And certainly, like you say, they're not going to spill the beans when asked about it on a podcast, are they? At the end of the day, not unless they have approval from whoever's in authority to give approval. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I think we'll we'll just uh, finish off with um, you'd also mentioned briefly earlier on about uh, Bob Lazar as well and some potential connections to MJ12. I think I think the alleged alleged pass uh, that he brought forward had the letters MAJ on it. Um, uh-huh. uh, just in general, do you have any thoughts about how the Bob Lazar, Bob Lazar story actually fits in with the MJ12 documents and, and just MJ12 in general? Well, he, he claims that when he was employed there that he was read in, you know, he was given a stack of material to read. Uh, and if they had real UFOs there and all that, then it wouldn't surprise me at all if those documents mentioned MJ-12 or Majestic or something like that. On the other hand, the term MAJ in itself does not necessarily mean MJ-12 or Majestic. There's 
there are terms uh, such as MAJCOM, M-A-J-C-O-M, that's major command. Okay, so just because you see M-A-J doesn't necessarily mean that it's majestic. Mm. Yeah, that's an important... But it may have been, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that's an, an important point. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, on Bob Lazar's overall story as to whether he's, you know, he's, he's being genuine or is it another case of potentially some some truth to that and, and some, some untruths as well in there? Uh, I just reserve judgment. Um, he's he's gray basket to me, and uh, I'm not saying he's a liar, but I'm not out there trumpeting that he worked at at S four. Uh, I think I just try to keep an open mind in this field. I try to keep an open mind, but take everything with a grain of salt. And you've mentioned it several times, Frank, that it's so hard to tell what is true and what it what is not true. And I think that's a big, big problem that we have in the, in in this subject and in, in the UFO endeavors. We don't know what to believe. <laughs> it's very true. I think that's a a pretty good quote to end on. I think as well. There. So um, yeah, I'd just like to say thank you very much for joining me. It's been a, a, a real uh, interesting chat, and uh, I, ho- I hope you'll come back uh, at some point soon and, and talk again. Well, thank you for having me, Frank, and I'd love to come back sometime. Thank you. UFO Thinker Podcast.